We just sang the words, all thy works will praise your name in earth and sky and sea. The works of God that are sometimes a mystery to us. That's really the story of Joseph. As we've looked at his life, we've seen the great mystery of God's work in his life in ways that are hard to even imagine. Today, as we continue, I want to read for you from Genesis 45, verse 5, right after Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. Listen now to these words. Joseph says, and, do not now, or, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Let's stop there. Go ahead and have a seat. Go ahead and have a seat. We're going to, uh, we're going to get to those words. It's going to take us a little bit of time to get to those words. You might have noticed that I just read out of, song, or out of Genesis 45. And if you were with us last week, we walked through Genesis 42. And you might be thinking, Mike, how are we going to get from chapter 42 to chapter 45? And, and this is where I'm going to warn you. Today is going to be one of those days. <laughs> We're going to cover three chapters. We're going to read a lot of scripture together. And, and I want to prepare you for that. But here's the deal. These three chapters, they are one unit in the narrative of, of Joseph. They go together. They actually, if you were with us last week, they mirror chapter 42 almost perfectly. Last week we saw in chapter 42 that the brothers are in Canaan. They go to Egypt. They interact with, with Joseph. And then they go back to Canaan. It's going to be the same story, but instead of one chapter, it's going to take three today. And we're going to walk through it together. And to set things up for you, I want to ask you to think about the last time you took an exam. When's the last time you took, I heard someone laugh. When's the last time you took an exam? Now, some of you, you took an exam this week. Stephen, yesterday he was in the office and he was taking an exam for a class he's taking on the New Testament, right? And so he took an exam. He did decent, so we can keep him on board for a little bit longer. We'll see if he keeps doing well, but we'll see. Uh, some of you, you're like, last time I took an exam, that years ago. You're thinking college or, or high school. But I want to imagine if you had to take an exam right now. I want you to imagine this is the kind of exam that it is, it's not graded on a curve. It's not one of, the, you know, it's really a really generous in grading. It is pass or fail. And I want you to imagine this is one of the most difficult exams you could ever take. This is the kind of exam that you have to study day in and day out for months leading up to this exam. I want you to imagine the nerves you would face. I want you to imagine that kind of test and the difficulty that it would be. And then I want to, you to imagine, as you sit down at your, test, at your desk, and you've got your number two sharpened pencil, you pick it up, and your teacher brings you the exam, and then a moment later, your teacher or your professor or your proctor, they come back to you with another piece of paper, and they slide it onto your desk, and you see at the top of it, it says, answer key. And in that moment, they say, this exam is now open book. You are free to use this answer key for any of the questions you want. What kind of a relief would you feel in that moment? How many of us would use the answer key in that moment? Right? Yeah? Your teacher gives you green light. You can use it. It's, it's all, it's perfectly fair game. The reason I share that with you, the reason I share that perspective, what would it be like to have an answer key to the most difficult, difficult test you would ever face is I think that in, in a spiritual way, Genesis 43 through 45 does the same thing for us. Genesis 43 through 45, we are going to end up seeing how God is sovereign. 
That's a big word. For us today, here's, here's how I want you to think about sovereign. God, his rule and his reign are supreme. The, 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 he reigns over the history of mankind that really nothing happens outside of his control, even those things that are difficult and hard and bad or even tragic. He is using those for his sovereign purpose. See, I want, I want us to start by thinking this way, because if we can not only think that way, but if we can believe that is true, if we can have that kind of perspective about who God is and how he works in this world, it's kind of like the answer key being slid across our desk when we go through the tests of life. In fact, our big idea today, if you're following along in the notes, our big idea is simple. God's sovereignty unlocks the answers for the tests that we face in life. When life is hard, when life is unfair, when people that are near to us betray us or hurt us, when life doesn't work out the way we hope or the way we expect or the way we believe with all of our heart that it should, in those moments, God's sovereignty, trusting in it, it provides the answers for how we move forward. Now, I already mentioned that today is, we're going to look at three chapters. I encourage you, if you have your own Bible, this would be a great day that you have your Bible open and you're following along, because we're going to read a handful of long sections. And honestly, church, this is a great passage because the story tells itself. My job today in a lot of ways is just to read the, the scripture for you and allow your minds to absorb the glory that is the word of God in the story of Joseph. Now that said, we're going to pick up, and we're going to pick up beginning in the land of Canaan, where, where Joseph's brothers, their, their grain is running out. Their grain is running out. They know they have to go back to Egypt sooner or later, but they've been trying to avoid the test of going back to Egypt. And so here's how we're going to start. We're going to start in chapter 43, and we're going to see that testing is unavoidable. Facing tests, uh, the, the tests of life, it, they're unavoidable. Our first section, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Follow along with me as we, as we begin chapter 43, verses 1 through 14. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they, Joseph's brothers, when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man, time out, who's the man? Joseph. He's the one who is ruling over Egypt except for Pharaoh. It says, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now Israel, this Israel is Jacob, one and the same person, two different names, but, but the same person, their father. He says, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring, bring your brother down? 
And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father said to him, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it is an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This is... This is our first portion of our story. We find, we find that really these brothers have been trying to avoid the test. Now, if, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, what, what test was that again? Let me, what exactly was going on? Let me just remind you of where our story's been up to this point. Our story began in Genesis 37 when Joseph was discovered to be the favorite of all of his father's sons. Jacob has 12 boys. He has 12 boys from four different women, long convoluted story, but, but the big picture is he favorites Joseph. He gives him special clothing, he gives him special treatment. And so when his brothers who hate him and are jealous of him, when they have a moment to do something about this brother of theirs, they do. When they're miles away from home in the land of Dothan, they sell their brother to slavery. Joseph ends up in slavery in Egypt. He ends up serving in the house of a man named Potiphar. As a slave in the house of Potiphar, he's falsely accused of, of sin against Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. In prison, he encounters two men who serve Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In time, one of those men is delivered back to his position. And when Pharaoh has nightmares one night, this cupbearer reminds or tells Pharaoh that Joseph can interpret his dreams. Long story short, Joseph does just that by the power of God, and Joseph is elevated to be the one in charge of all of Egypt. Last week, that's where our story picked up, and we saw that the brothers went to Egypt to get grain, and Joseph, he recognized them. They did not recognize him. Joseph was harsh to them. Joseph was under a test himself, but in the end, he sent his brothers back to Canaan not just with grain, but with their own money hidden back. These brothers know to return back to Egypt, they're going to have to face maybe the accusation, accusation that they are guilty of being thieves as well. This brings us to where we are today, and we see that they, they can't avoid this test. They can't avoid this test because they have a few needs. Their first need is obviously it's a physical need. They need food. The famine is severe. There, there are going to be five more years of famine from this point on. They can't survive without food. But the text actually gives us a hint that there is a greater need. Their greater need, did you pick it up? 
It's when Jacob speaks to them, and he says this. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Their greater need is a spiritual need. They need mercy. They need food and provision. But more than that, they need mercy because the underlying story is that they are carrying their great guilt, their guilt of selling their brother into slavery. Yes, they need food, but God's really moving the story forward so that they have to deal with the fact that they don't just need food, they need the mercy. They need mercy. And this is just like you and I, isn't it? I mean, we can go around today and we can say, hey, how can we pray for each other today? And uh, uh, dozens of hands would go up and people would say things like, oh, will you pray for, pray for my great aunt Mildred because she's got gout in her left foot, right? Some of us would say prayers like that, right? We would say, here are the physical ailments of my family members that I want prayer for. You probably know some people like that, people with real sicknesses. We would go around and we'd share, here's my financial difficulty. Would you pray for this? Here's my relational difficulty, but if we got really honest, we don't just have physical needs, do we? If we're really honest, we, need the same, we have the same spiritual need that these brothers had. We need mercy. Because we have the same problem that these brothers had. These brothers had this problem of the weight of the guilt and their sin. They were carrying this around for 20 years now. The fact that they sold their brother to slavery, they're carrying this guilt, and so they need God's mercy. Just like you and I. Just like you and I. And when we go through a test, usually a test is where we realize the great needs that we have. That's exactly what we're going to find is happening. And so these brothers, they are about to go through what I will describe as three separate tests. Each of these tests are related, but, but let's walk through these. Let's continue in the text. They're the brothers' first test. The brothers' character is tested. They make the trip from Canaan to Egypt. They, they bring the extra money that was in their bags, and they are going to face Joseph again. Let's look at how their character is tested. Verses 15 through 25 says, So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We did not know who put the money in our sacks, he, the steward of Joseph's house. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, 
they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. Now, let's pick this apart for a minute. These men, these brothers, they're afraid. Now, if I invited you over to my house, I, I hope you would not be afraid. But, but they're going to this house, and they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, do you remember Potiphar's house? Remember Potiphar is the chief of the captain guard, and in his house, it's likely that he had a dungeon? This was very common for high-ranking officials in, Egypt, in, in ancient Egypt. It's like you're going to buy a house, and you go on the tour, and you're like, here's the master bedroom, and, and here's the master bath, and, and here's the great room, and here's the dining room. And if you're in ancient Egypt, you're also like, and here's the dungeon. <laughs> These brothers were afraid because they were certain that their guilt upon them, not just for what they had done to Joseph, but they were, they were worried that the fact that they had the money that they should have bought the grain with, that they were going to be assaulted, that Joseph was going to enslave them and steal their donkeys, <laughs> is what he says. This is why they're worried. They think they're going to Joseph's house not for a feast, but to be put in prison. Of course they're terrified. But notice that in this moment, instead of, instead of blaming others, instead of shirking their responsibility, instead of avoiding the moment of testing, this is the moment where things start to change for the brothers. I want you to see that they are honest and that they accept responsibility even though they didn't take the money. They go right to the man right to the door, and they lay the facts out and as clear as daylight. Here's what happened. Here's the money. And they just begin the conversation. They take responsibility for their actions. And I want you to see what happens. This is amazing because they're expecting punishment. But look at the response of the steward of Joseph's house. See, we see that they are given peace instead of punishment. Look what the man says. He replied, shalom to you. This is a word for wholeness. This is the idea that there, there's nothing fractured, there's nothing frayed, there's nothing broken, that all is well. He greets them with peace. He greets them with peace, and then he, he says that it's actually their God and the God of their father. Even, even though this, this Egyptian steward has a theology that's probably this deep, he understands that behind the scenes that the, the, the God Yahweh is at work. They see this, he, he sees this, and he explains this to them. But, but here's what I want us to realize. In this moment where they are faced with their first test, the first test of their character, are they going to be honest? Are they going to accept responsibility? They do, and they are greeted with peace. They're greeted with peace. There was no guarantee of this. It could have gone the other way. But here's what I want us to remember. We have the same exact test over and over and over again. You and I, there is not one of us that does not weakly face a test of our character. Are we going to tell the truth? Are we going to keep our word? Are we going to do the right thing? Are we going to engage in sin? Or are we going to confess our sin? Are we going to deal biblically with what we've done wrong? Over and over, we face the test of character where we have to be honest and ultimately where we have to do exactly what these men did and accept responsibility. That's what we have to do. And there's no guarantee. Sometimes we do this and there is no peace. 
Sometimes we do it when we find peace. But every time we accept responsibility for our sin before the Lord, listen very carefully, every time we go before the Lord in confession, believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every time, how does the Lord respond? Shalom. Peace. He, he brings us near. This, this is just a brief lesson in that test of character. When you and I, when we have to decide, are we going to be honest with our sin? Are we going to be honest with our guilt? Are we going to accept responsibility for our actions? And when we do before the Lord, what a great response. These brothers, they pass the test of character. It's miraculous. How about you? Are you passing the test of character? Are you playing the game, living a lie, shirking responsibility, and hiding your shame? Or are you just going to the Lord saying, i got to deal with this? Well, let's keep going. Let's look at their second test. The brothers, secondly, the brothers' covetousness is tested. Their, their envy, their, their godless jealousy, their evil desire where they want what others have. This is what we saw in all the way back in Genesis 37 and the way they interacted with their brothers. This is what they likely has been festering in them these 20 years. And this is likely part of their lives in the way they interact with Benjamin, who is now dad's favorite. Let's keep going. Verses 26 through 34. It says, When Joseph came home, they brought into the into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare, and he said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Verse 30, then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. In controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, I want us to look at Joseph's response here. And I want us to see the brothers and notice some things in the text about how the brothers react here. First of all, I want you to see Joseph, instead of condemning his brothers, he, he begins to show compassion. I mean, think about this from Joseph's perspective. They have brought Benjamin... This is the brother that Joseph probably cares about the most. This is the brother who did not sell him into slavery. They have brought him safely to Egypt. Joseph knows there are five years of famine left 
You know what, Joseph, in this moment, he could, he could just take care of these brothers. He could put all of these evil brothers in prison. He can bring Benjamin safely into his home and provide for him and care for him and spoil him. He could make everything right that he wants to make right now. But instead, his heart, first of all, is warmed with compassion toward Benjamin and toward his brothers. He throws a feast for them. He feeds them probably like they have not eaten in years. And not only that, he, 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 he lavishes his love upon Benjamin. But this is a test. I want you to imagine in this moment, as five times the portions are being given to Benjamin, I want you to imagine Joseph sitting there back, watching the way all of his other brothers respond. Are they going to scowl at Benjamin? Are they going to glare at his brother? I mean, this is the kid that now is dad's favorite. Once again, not only is he dad's favorite all the way back in the land of Canaan, but now we're in Egypt, and now this man who was hard to us and mean to us and who has imprisoned one of our brothers all this time, Simeon, now he is gushing over Benjamin. What is going on here? I want you to imagine watching these brothers. But the text gives no hint of jealousy. The text gives no hint of selfishness or of envy. In fact, the text, I would argue, it shows us something different. See, instead of coveting the brothers, they show contentment. They show contentment. They're amazed at the seating arrangement. How does Joseph know how, who sits where? They're oblivious to the fact that Joseph is not eating with the Egyptians. There's a hint in the text for the reader. The brothers are clueless, but we're starting to pick, piece things together. Oh, something's going to happen here. Joseph's not Egyptian. And then he lavishes Benjamin, and instead of being jealous, the text says that they're merry. <laughs> we could actually translate it, they're drunk. <laughs> they party. And they enjoy the evening together, and they don't scowl. There doesn't seem to be any glaring. They don't seem to resent the youngest brother because he's the favorite once again. They pass the second test. They're content with their lot in life in this moment. They don't repeat Genesis 37:11. It says, "His brothers were jealous of Joseph." They don't hate Benjamin. They're not jealous of Benjamin. They're content in this moment. And think about this. Think about this from, from Joseph's perspective. First of all, in this moment where he shows compassion to those who have done great evil to him. This is where some of us find ourselves today. There have been people that have hurt us deeply who have done great wrongs to us, who have sinned in grievous ways toward us. And we can carry around this hurt, but in this moment, Joseph begins to show them compassion. And there's some of us in this room that find ourselves relating a lot to Joseph's brothers. How come someone else is always the favorite? How come someone else always has the advantage? How come someone else always gets whatever blessing I want? Why, why, why? This is not fair. When we find ourselves in that position, it's a moment to be content. 
I mean, I want to I remind us of the sub-theme we have, we have talked about almost every week in this series. The sub-theme is Joseph went from being a victim to a victor to being a vessel. But remember we've talked about being a victim over and over again. And these brothers could be victims. Everyone gets the advantage beside me. But in this moment, they don't dwell in being a victim or, or whatever they want to imagine is wrong. They're content. They pass the second test. How about you? Do you have a content heart with your lot in life? Are you envious of what others have that you do not have? Are you constantly unsatisfied with the things in your life and upset that someone else has a better house or a better car or a better 401k or a better spouse or better kids or better health? Or are you content? How do you face this second test? They, they pass the first test. They begin to show real godly character. They pass the second test. Instead of coveting as their brother is the favorite still, they're content. But let's get to the third test. And this is like, this is like when you're taking an exam and the final question is the make it or break it question. This is the most important question in the exam. This final test is all or nothing. This is where everything becomes revealed. Let's continue. We're going to see this final test is the test of commitment. Are they committed to their brother Benjamin? Are they committed to do the right thing? Ultimately, are they committed to God and God's ways? We're going to jump in again. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. Follow along with me. We're in chapter 44 now. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry <clears throat> and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. This is repeating, filling it with food, giving them their money back. Verse 2, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that, the, that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, when the steward caught up to Joseph's brothers, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. We would never do this. Verse 8. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house? They continue. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also shall be my Lord's servants. Look at how confident they are. We have done nothing wrong. If someone's done something wrong, which no one has, you can put them to death, and the rest of us will be your slaves. Verse 10, 
He, the steward, said, let it be as you say. He who is found guilty, it shall, be, it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he, the steward, searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Every bag searched builds tension, anticipation. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Verse 13, then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. He fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to him, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. I want you to see in this moment, look at Judah. In this moment, Judah is finally honest about his guilt. I mean, th this, this moment, it, it culminates, verse 16. Look at what Judah says about God. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. What guilt is he speaking of? He's not guilty of stealing money. He's made that really clear. They have a clean and clear conscience. They don't know how that money got there. It's not the guilt of stealing the silver cup. Again, they don't know how that got there. you got to believe they, they had zero expectation that Benjamin would have taken this cup. They, they are completely caught off guard. What guilt has God found out? What guilt is being revealed? What guilt are they dealing with in this moment? The guilt of 22 years ago when they sold their brother into slavery. The guilt they've been carrying around for over two years decades. The guilt that we saw last week, God was bringing them to the moment where they had to confront. And in this moment, Judah is finally honest about his guilt. He's not just discussing it among his brothers like he did in chapter 42. He's confessing it to this Lord over Egypt. This is an incredible moment. In this moment, Judah's got lots of options. I want you to see, as the story develops, that Judah chooses to be sacrificial in this moment. Up to this point, Judah has been very selfish. He was part of his brother selling Joshua into slavery. Chapter 38, Judah is extremely selfish. You can read it for yourself in his own little story. But in this moment, Judah finally is sacrificial instead of selfish. Verse, look at verse 17 to start. But he said, this is, this is Joseph, but he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Look at what Joseph says. He says, nope, I'm going to send the rest of you free. Only the one who had the silver cup, only Benjamin will be held guilty for this sin. Now, rewind to chapter 37. 
You remember when Joseph was the favorite? You remember when Joseph made the trek and found his brothers in Dotham? You remember how they had to figure out a plan to get rid of daddy's favorite, and they had to figure out a plan, and finally they got rid of him? Look, this, this is the same exact situation, except it's ten times easier. In this moment, getting rid of the youngest favorite brother is a snap. Judah, in this moment, can say, okay, sounds good. Bye, Ben. Grab their money and go. This is the test. How is Judah going to respond? Has he changed? He's changed. Follow along with me. Pick up in verse 18. Then Judah went up and said to Joseph, By the way, this is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. It's not a threat. Follow along with me. Oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, he's talking about the first time they met, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to us, your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes down with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. Judah is talking about Joseph in this moment. <laughs> and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Judah gives this lengthy explanation. He says, This is my predicament. This is the situation. And now I want you to hear verses 33 and 34. This is, this is remarkable. Now, therefore, please let me. He says your servant, but he's talking about himself. Judah's words, Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. 
And let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Take me instead. I I will take his place. The younger generation here, you, you recognize this. I volunteer as tribute. A couple of you. He says, take me. This is the selfish Judah who is changed. When he is facing the final exam, the final test, the final question, the most important question where he can get rid of his father's favorite son once again, in this moment, he takes his place, he stands in his stead, he says, I will become your slave, just let Benjamin go free. He passes the test. He passes it. Now, put your finger right here and hold here for just a minute. I want to take a detour. I want to take a detour, and I want to look at this this person, Judah, theologically for just a moment. In the next few weeks, we're going to return to his story. But, But in this moment where you have his guilt being recognized and you have him willingly sacrificing himself, in this moment, I think that we see a picture where our guilt and the grace of Jesus Christ collide. Let me show you what I mean. Our guilt in this moment is represented with Judah's guilt, and then Jesus' sacrifice is represented in Judah's willingness. In fact, Jesus comes from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. This is setting up a greater narrative. This is setting up a bigger story. This is setting up an even more wonderful truth. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here's what Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, and you, he's talking about Christians, believers. He says, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, You see two great things colliding in this moment. First of all, like Judah, you and I, we are guilty. Colossians says we were dead in our sin and trespass. It says you and I, we have rebelled against the one true God. We have in our selfishness, we have acted in all sorts of ways that do not honor God with our lust, with our greed, with our pride, with our hate, with our anger, whatever it looks like in your life, it's probably some combination of all of it. We were dead in our sin and trespasses. We were just like Judah. Our guilt has found us out. It's been revealed. But we've been forgiven. We've been made alive. How? The text says that this he set aside, all of our debt, all of our sin, all of the consequence, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Like Judah, we are guilty. But even more importantly, like Judah, Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Judah was a sinful man taking the place of a sinful man. Jesus is the perfect, sinless son of God who took the place for all of sinful mankind. When we believe in him, this is what is true of us. Our sin and the, 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 the consequence of it is nailed to the cross. Come back with me to the Old Testament now. I want you to see how this connects, but let's go back. Because in this moment where Judah passes the final exam, in this moment where Judah passes the the test of his commitment, 
Joseph can't handle it anymore. It becomes overwhelming. It becomes overwhelming. And what we see is that in, instead of making it about himself, we ultimately see God's sovereignty is celebrated. Look at chapter 45. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. I'm going to summarize verses 10 through 26. And then I'm going to read verses 27 and 28. Stay with me here. Let's, let's read this chapter. It says, Then Joshua could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. All the Egyptians are out of the room. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them. I answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Time out. They were terrified. Why? So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. That's why they're terrified. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Then Joseph goes on and he explains that they will dwell in the land of Goshen and that Joseph will provide for them, that the family will not face poverty during the famine. He says, tell dad of all the honor that I have in Egypt. And then the brothers, they all weep and they fall upon each other and they embrace, including Benjamin. And then Pharaoh himself hears that Joseph's brothers are in Egypt. And Pharaoh opens up the land. He says, bring your family. We will provide for them. In fact, Pharaoh sends wagon upon wagon upon wagon full of goods loaded down all the way back to Canaan just to bring it all the way back to Egypt with dear old dad. Dad is surprised. He doesn't believe it at first. Verse 27, But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when, they saw, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. These gray hairs that were on their way to Sheol are no longer that way. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a wonderful picture. But I want you to notice in Joseph's language, who gets the credit? Joseph's brothers are terrified he warns them not to go arguing on the way home and being angry with each other because of what they've done he, because he doesn't want them to get the credit. He says, it's not you that sent me to here. Look with me. Look at verse 5. 
The end of verse 5 says, For God sent me before you to preserve life. Look at verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Also verse 8. He, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh. Verse 9. God made me Lord in all of Egypt. Here's what Joseph is saying. Look at what God has done. Look at the sovereign hand of God, how God is using this terrible circumstance to save you and me and dad and Israel and Egypt and ultimately the world. Look at what God has done. This brings us back to the big idea this morning. This morning we began, we said, God's sovereignty unlocks the answers for the tests we face in life. I don't know what tests you're facing in life, but listen, if you are willing, listen, if you are willing to not just consider, but if you are willing to believe that God has a sovereign hand over this whole world, it's like the answer key being slid across the desk to you. In that moment, you can face whatever it is that is before you. In that moment, you can face whatever difficulty is is coming down the way. In that moment, because God is sovereign, you can endure. In fact, in, in, in God's sovereignty, I have three final words for you. Three final words. First of all, because God is sovereign, I can be forgiven. Think about this story. These brothers were guilty. They were dead in their sin and trespass. You and I, we are guilty. We are dead in our sin and trespass. But the sovereign hand of God, because he loved us, he sent his son Jesus, who lived life, and then took the weight of our guilt upon himself, dying and being resurrected. Listen, this is the sovereign hand of God. Because God is sovereign, you can be forgiven. So why are you hiding your sin? Why are you unwilling to confess? Why are you delaying repentance? Why don't you just go to the Lord in all of your guilt and whatever shame you have and lay it before him and know that when you do that, how does he greet you? Peace. Shalom. Second word. Because God is sovereign, I can be content. Listen, because God is sovereign, this means that you are exactly where he wants you. I don't know your your economic standing in life. I don't know if you're wealthy or not. I don't know your physical health or not, right? I don't know what you're dealing with, but because God is sovereign, he has you right where he wants you so you can be content. You don't have to try to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to have the mindset that says, I want more, I want better. You don't have to pout because your neighbor has something you don't have. You can be content with your wealth. You can be content with your family. You can be content with your life. Why? Because God is sovereign. Stop trying to play the game. Stop Stop having idolatry of the heart for everything you don't have, and instead have gratitude in your heart for everything you do have. Third word. Not only can you be forgiven, not only can you be content, but because God is sovereign, I can be sacrificial. 
You are saved, not just so that you can be saved. You are saved for a mission. You are called by God for his purposes. This brief picture of Judah being willing to be sacrificial, this is really a reflection of the greater picture of Jesus who was ultimately sacrificial for us, and then he calls us to follow in his footsteps. Listen very carefully. All the things you have in life, you don't have to grip onto them as tight as you can. You can be generous. You can look around at the needs of those that surround you, the needs of those in our community, and the needs of those in the world, and you can be generous, and you can give, and you can care. You can give your time. You can give your ability. You can give your resources. You can sacrifice. Why? Because the sovereign God is going to care for you. You need not be greedy. Because God is sovereign, you today can be forgiven you can be content, and you can live a sacrificial life. Now, as we go to the Lord in prayer, I want you just to take those three words with you. Well, let's go before him and remember that he is sovereign. And, and because he is sovereign, let's once again put our faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are sovereign that you rule and reign over the affairs of men, that nations rise and fall, not because of their strength, but because of your will, and that our very lives are under your good care. In fact, we, we recognize your care even as we pray to you as our Father. And so, Father, today we come to you after marveling at this great story from Genesis, after being amazed at how you were working all those years ago to preserve a remnant. But we come here in this moment recognizing that your sovereignty is most greatly expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in your love for us, you made a way for us to be forgiven by Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so, Lord, today we come before you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who has yet to receive the forgiveness of their sin, that today would be that day. That they would sense you calling them and they would trust in the crucified and risen Jesus. Father, for those in this room who have already believed and already received forgiveness, I pray you would renew in their hearts and minds the joy of their salvation, that they would remember once again that they, they have been forgiven, and so they need not walk in guilt and shame. Father, I also pray that that leads us to live lives of contentment and lives of sacrifice. Lord, I pray that you would use us to reflect your love in such a way that our family members and our neighbors, our co-workers and our classmates, they would see our lives, they would see our contentment and our sacrifice, and that you would show them a glimpse of the gospel of Jesus so they might believe and so that they too would share in your grace and your mercy that they too would be saved. Lord, help us to live with that mission in mind every day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.